so Breaking Out the Dead took me two watchings to really let it sink in and, and find my love for that thing. Um, obviously, Martin Scorsese has a long history with New York City and a long history with drugs, right? And to me, I watch this movie and it feels like what it's like to because you know being John Malkovich you go into John Malkovich's head and you kind of live through his life it's as if it was being Tom Sizemore you know what I mean like you just jump into Tom Sizemore's bed <laughs> and the drugs and the nonsense is like flying at you and and I feel like this movie is what it's like for Martin Scorsese to be there Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So we are continuing our Martin Scorsese watch, which has gone on for a long time now, uh, I guess uh, a month and a half at this point. Uh, and on this episode, we are talking about uh, a another interesting double feature we have uh, to start. We'll be talking about bringing out the dead and then we will move into the aviator. Um, so just your standard double feature. No, no surprises here. So Mike, where are you with, uh, with Scorsese now? We've gone through his entire early career and then we've moved through, you know, the age of innocence and we just talked about casino in the last episode. So where are you with Marty at this point in his career? I feel like I'm being set up. Like you want me to say I'm done with him? Like (laughs) fuck this guy overrated. (laughs) Welcome to Twitter. (laughs) Well, that's not my thought, but the, I think uh, you could be done with this guy in the sense that um, at this point he's given me everything I could hope for and more. Right. I, like, right. You talk, <laughs> you sort of set it up like we're like in the, you know, this, this long, like Lord of the Rings style journey to like get through the Scorsese catalog, but you're really hard pressed. Like, I feel like you could have a good conversation with people saying like, you know, that's my favorite one or that's, you know, from this time period or that time period. Right. Uh, I will admit that the seventies feel like very far off <laughs> even yeah. on this podcast. It feels like forever ago we were talking about Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, but as we come up on this one, um, I don't know. Is this like a one for me type thing? Like casinos, it, it, like it one for them? It kind of feels like it, doesn't it? Especially because the, the only, the only movie that we've talked about so far that I could compare this with, is taxi driver because it's very much this kind of like you know of course you have this you know he's with people but still separate from them he's driving around at night he's doing his job he's and but he's a very different character right there's a lot of stress around the fact that like i didn't save this girl and i'm not really helping anyone and he's you see him spiraling downwards for most of this movie but there were moments of this where i was like this is kind of taxi driver-esque and then of course i looked it up and it's written again by paul schrader um so not much of a surprise there but it does kind of feel like i mean you mentioned it being like you know one for him and it just kind of feels like one of those movies where it's like yeah this looks crazy this book is insane. I kind of want to make this. Uh, yeah, I was thinking more like After Hours as mm, like After yeah. Hours and Taxi Driver and this weird sort of like so, so, combination. Yeah. And it is kind of that one night and all these crazy things happen. Yeah, I could totally see that comparison. It's a very strange version of like a you know a Christmas Carol where you have like the three 
yeah. <laughs> three ghosts and cage. Like, you know, it's the, the different acts he has, which, uh, you know, frankly, I'm always going to go with John Goodman and in particular, how enraged he gets about them missing, like where he can eat. And then remembering like mid rant, he's like, wait, I already had that. I can't have the same meal. Like it's <laughs> okay. <my> <laughs> Fried chicken. It's okay. Yeah, We've yeah. made it. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing as I was watching this movie is I was, I was so grateful that he cast Nicholas Cage in this role uh, because this is there's a lot of different types of Nicholas Cage roles, right? Early in his career, you have like very leaning heavily on the comedy, and then you have different points in his career where it's just like you go full Cage and just kind of lose your mind on screen. I think you were the one who told me this, where Ebert kind of talked about him like he's not so much a great actor as he's a great performer. Uh, in that way that yeah. you don't really see anymore. It's not like, oh, that looks real to me, but I'm entertained by this. I, I'm i riveted by this kind of performance. And I feel like this version of Cage is kind of right in between, and I think he plays Haunted really well. Um, and you get that, I think, kind of from the first frame of this movie. And it's something that's really interesting to me is that it's there is an arc to this character, but it's not as if the arc is like, Everything is good, and then things get bad, and things get good again. Like, he starts off haunted and terrified and feeling terrible about himself and the world around him. And with a different actor, I think it's a tough buy-in. I read uh, that I think Schrader wanted Edward Norton in this role, which you could see. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I mean, he—I don't know. I honestly think that may have leaned more comedic, though. With him, and I don't, I don't know if it's like the age, like he, he just comes across, in particular in this time period, is like really young compared to Nicolas Cage, and I actually don't know their ages. I also I think, think like, I also think Edward Norton. I mean, this sounds mean, but like compared to Nicolas Cage, he's little, and I think that <laughs> this is a strange, <laughs> especially when you're next to like these big actors like John Goodman, like Ving Rhames, like Tom Sizemore. Wow. You We're, have to have some sort of physical presence. And Edward Dave Norton is, is like my size. He's a little guy. Casting, uh, <laughs> bring out the dead as if, you know, uh, we're talking about an offensive line here <laughs> with Ving Rhames and John Goodman, Tom Sizemore. Uh, I, I, I will admit that I agree with you that it would feel different. I, I think that the movie would not be, totally that different but it may be like give me a different sense of the character uh where i disagree is i don't think i ever thought about like oh he's too little to be a guy a paramedic sitting in a car for most of the film <laughs> i mean i guess there is a point where he uh grabs a man falling off a, a ledge right. uh, i mean it's, but he's think, also hooked in i, I don't think I it's i don't know cage. how believable that is with Edward Look, this is not no. a, the rocker uh face-off cage here you know <laughs> true it's true <laughs> um but yeah, like I, so that uh, I remember, I think reading that, or maybe I heard an interview with Ebert where he, you know, he he wasn't being dismissive or insulting in any way by calling Cage a performer. <clears throat> it was sort of like nostalgic, almost like, wow, this is like he goes places the other actors would feel like they're sort of showing their ass, like mm-hmm. you know that he doesn't have that particular ego about him. Now I think Nicholas Cage has a very different type of ego, but any, like anything I've read about him and there was a good, uh, I think it was a New York times piece recently, like this year, uh, where he's just sort of bemused, befuddled by like the response to his like screen presence. Cause he's, I don't think cage sees any difference between say like, uh, you know, one of those sort of straight to DVD type thrillers or bringing out the dead, which is kind of cool that he's yeah. just like, no, you should treat all of it as like whatever. 
yeah, whatever the material job. provides, I'm going to do my best to like fit that vision. Um, I would say as an actor, you know, at this point he's coming off of an Academy Award. He's like going into action movies with like The Rock and Con Air. Uh, so he had not quite been pigeonholed until right. like, oh, Nicolas Cage, crazy person. So <laughs> in that regard, I wonder if this film has not aged as well as it should have because of Nicolas Cage, which mm. would be a point for, you know, the very small uh, can't play, you know, sports ball Edward <laughs> Norton in this role. <laughs> Thank you for admitting that I was right. I'm just going to, that's how I'm going to take that. I think in the long run, I was right by saying like, you know, maybe Cage, uh, I, you know, my fear would be like, there's a really cool like YouTube clip that's funny, which has a lot of stuff from like Vampire's Kiss mm. um, and, and like sort of late 80s, early 90s stuff. Uh, with it's like Nicolas Cage freaking out for 10 minutes. Uh, I've seen that. And my fear would yeah. be, I haven't gone back to watch it, but I wonder if there's anything from bringing out the dead, you know, in that, because you could, you could pull stuff out of context and be like, right. Oh, that's goofy and silly, which is, you know, a pretty big disservice to, uh, the director of, uh, Goodfellas two that we just covered. <laughs> Jeez. Here we go. <laughs> so the thing that stuck out to me was, you know, they have this whole setup in the movie where, you know, in his, in his mind, he let this girl die. He didn't he didn't do his job and this innocent girl died and he spends a lot of the movie talking about, well, and now I'm not saving anyone. Everything is terrible. He's drinking, he's using drugs, all this stuff is. And there's kind of this idea of like, well, if I could just save somebody, it would be okay. And he does. He saves Cliff Curtis's character, uh, who's a drug dealer. Which Edward Norton could not. Because he's yes. not strong enough. He was not strong enough. That is correct. Thank you for admitting that. Um, but I love the fact that that's not even really a turning point for him. It's not like, oh, I did this thing. Now everything is okay. And it, it really goes to show that idea of, you know, when we do go that far down the rabbit hole, when we are feeling that terrible about ourselves, even if we do what we think will make us feel better, life kind of still goes on. And he's still kind of stuck in this job he hates, in this position he hates, and surrounded by people he kind of despises. Like he will work with these people, he will get along with them for as much of as much of the shift as he can, but it's not as if there's any reward for him even when he does what he feels like is the right thing and what should make him feel better. He has a line I think in the voiceover uh talking about um you know you have to you have to be able to not blame yourself when things don't go right. So then you have to be careful about how much you give yourself credit for right. when things do. Uh, and yeah, as far as the people he works with in particular, I guess with Tom Sizemore, who's like his, his A third nightmare. partner. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, physically assaulting, uh, a man, uh, and then <laughs> cage jumps in to try to save him. And it's, you know, you're getting into that dicey territory where it's like, yeah, he's good, but is he a good enough man? For this right. job or is, does anyone like have their goodness sort of stamped out if you're just surrounded by the inevitable destruction of these of a certain you know percentage of the population here that it seems like that's a part of the economy of this trade of being a savior is that it's going to be the same people in need over and over again right. uh, the ones that are sort of left behind uh, that that's one of my favorite things uh, that, and I'd kind of forgotten it. Uh, so for this watch, I really honed in on was the Patricia Arquette character as Mary. Um, is that, you know, she seems not damsel in distress because it's her father that they come to, to, to save on a call, but like her, you know, I, I love what she does with her voice here. Like she is so 
quiet and she's like this like presence that's almost like she could just like sort of fade away at any moment i think that so we talk about martin scorsese's tricks and me not understanding the names because i don't have a film background like that but i could see them happening and i i i appreciate them so there's a sequence where patricia arquette and um and uh, nicholas cage are sitting down in the hospital for a second and the film cuts from every angle of, of her face it's not like a pan around, but it's like snap cut to the left side of her face, to the front, to another angle quickly. And to me, right away, I'm like, man, this dude is obsessed with her. Like he's jumping from angle to angle on Patricia Carr. And it literally is four seconds of film. And in that four seconds, Martin Scorsese delivers this crush that one character has over the other. Right. Uh, so when you get some revelations about her, like, you know, one of her coping mechanisms is that she goes back to drugs. And I don't think they present her that way. It's rare that you don't have another character say like, like we did in Casino, where it's like, oh, here's why you should watch out for Sharon Stone, which it's fine how that works there. But you don't have someone come up and tap Nick Cage on the shoulder and be like, you know, she wants she wants uh, had a problem with the with the drugs, sir. Right. So you know, you know what's going to happen in act two. Uh, it feels like a uh, gut punch to Nicolas Cage, but in that way that it's like, why, why should you know that? Why should you be right. like this godlike presence in our neighborhood? Like the people that are my neighbors, I know more about than you. I know why they find themselves in that trouble and why they need your help. And yeah, they are trespassers in a way. They're tourists, uh, tourists right. of pain, which is you know, that's why he should probably be allowed to quit. And uh, that's why he can't, you know, no matter what he does, he can't be fired because who the hell else is going to do this job, which is a little bit of the comedy that, you know, Edward Norton, famous comedian, he would, you know, punch it up a little bit. No, I'm not, not going with you on that. Are we ever going to do a a podcast directed by with, uh, I don't know if Norton's worked with like the same guy over and over. Uh, This is just surprising to me that I've never heard your distaste for this man before. Like, (laughs) is it because he gave up on the the Marvel universe? What what is this? Where's this coming from? No, and I like, I like Edward Norton Jr. as an actor a lot. I just think he's poorly cast here. I just don't think it would work. In theory, hypothetically cast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, let's not slap the man for something he didn't do. Like, it's just the screenwriter's like, oh, I thought about Edward Norton. And you're like, fuck that guy. Fuck Norton. <laughs> He's too busy now directing movies, starring himself, where he's stuttering through the through the trailer. He's very busy. So he's Edward Norton's fine. Don't, don't you worry about little Ed Norton. He's he's okay. Um, but but I am glad you brought up Patricia Arquette because I think I think that's a performance that it's easy to miss how good this performance is. And I think you hit on a lot of the reasons why. And I think even that scene in that kind of second act where you find out that she has had a problem with addiction in the past and she's going back to that. She even sets it up in this way of like, oh, I'm just going to help my friend. And then there's this really strange turn where she pushes Nick Cage away. And it's just kind of like, don't follow me. I'm fine. Everything's fine. And as the audience member, you're like, what is she really flipped on him really quickly. And then the next scene, you kind of figure out, oh, she does. And she is someone to look to for him. Like from the very from the first time she appears on screen, it's like almost this like ethereal quiet presence where everyone around him, if you look at all of his partners, even the ones that aren't Tom Sizemore, who are not, you know, trying to curb stomp drug addicts for fun. I mean, you have Ving Rhames, 
in a wonderful, hilarious performance. Okay, I'll be banging. We're gonna bring you back from the dead. Now, I want everybody here to grab the hand of the person next to you. Come on now, we ain't got much time. And look up towards the heavens. Dear Lord, here I am again, asking one more chance for a sinner. Please, Lord, bring back, I be banging, Lord. You have the power, Jesus. You have the might. You have the super light to spare this worthless man. Rise up, I be banging, and start the life anew, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. What happened? You fucking died, you stupid bastard. I warned you. Damn, you guys are good. Not us. The first step is love. The second is mercy. I'm sure um, that character was a huge fan of Last Temptation of Christ. Huge yes, fan. Absolutely. That's honestly one of my favorite scenes in this movie. It is fantastic. <laughs> and you mentioned John Goodman, who is, although an enjoyable presence, is, as usual, big and broad and loud. And Patricia Arquette's character, Mary, is so soft in kind of every way. And it's this kind of, and I think in a lot of ways for Frank, this is like this perfect feminine ideal. And that's why he keeps going back to her and he keeps trying to save her and he keeps wanting to be near her. Um, so I think it's I think it's a really interesting choice to make this character someone he wants to be close to, but also to be this severely flawed woman. And I like the fact that there's not this perfection. There's not the like, oh, he's drawn to her because she's the perfect woman. Like, no, she's still human. She still has her flaws and she's still involved in this world that he's a part of, that he's trying to get out of. So there's this constant kind of push and pull uh, between these two characters of him trying to get rid of this world and to leave this job, but still being attached to this woman who is kind of intrinsically tied to it. Yeah. And it seems like with films like this, normally I think they would want to um, sort of untangle the Patricia Arquette character from that world that she lives in. Like somehow Mm -hmm. she's smarter or better or she's like not involved with the community like right but i I love the revelation that she like i assume like the very people that she's giving nicholas cage information about as far as like well this is why he acts the way he does like you know he's had a pretty he's had a tough life and you know um that same character if asked about her probably would know that she's you know had a problem with addiction before but Nicolas Cage is only only seeing her in the neighborhood. And it's it is like it does harken back to Taxi Driver in that regard as far as De Niro's infatuation with Jodie Foster, as far as like somehow she's better than this mm-hmm. world that she's in uh, and she shouldn't be there. Now, she's also what 13 and Patricia Arquette is a grown woman. It's a little so better. <laughs> there's there's a slight difference there. Um, but I, I like that because I feel like Bringing Out the Dead is very it's a very masculine movie. Uh, but not in the same way that Taxi Driver is. Like, I don't right. think anyone, you know, I don't think any dude bros are going to like misconstrue the ending of Bringing Out the Dead as far as like if the man can just get some sleep, if he can just like, if he could just find peace like at the end of his day. Like, it's not right. like you don't ever, I don't think with the reading of this film, it's like, oh, that things have changed dramatically. Like, you know, it's just, but for right. him, he's just able to like be at peace with what he accomplished that day. Taxi driver, you know, <laughs> could give a very different vibe as far as like, well, 
no more pimps on that block. <laughs> took, care of, <laughs> took care of that problem. Well done, Travis. <laughs> you did good. <laughs> yeah, I you brought up after hours uh, earlier when we were talking about this, and there there's a moment very early in the movie that I was immediately made me think of after hours. There's a scene where I think it's with him and John Goodman, where the ambulance is just kind of racing around the city, and it almost doesn't look real anymore, and it's just like the taxi cab scene. From After Hours. And I find it interesting that they have so much in common, and yet this feels so different. And at first I thought, well, oh, it's because After Hours is a comedy and Bring Out the Dead isn't. But there's a lot of comedic moments in this movie. This movie leans actually very heavily on comedy to kind of get you through it. And yet the tone of it is so much dark. Maybe darker is the wrong word because After Hours is dark too. But like heavier. I guess the tone is so much the lead character. He's, he's, yeah. he's obsessed with sort of his own decency um, and like his influence mm. on the world. Um, it, you know, the, the lead character in after hours, not so much <laughs> trying to get laid is dabbling in like, Oh, maybe, I, maybe I'll fuck it, her. No, nah, yeah. she's a little weird for me. Oh, yeah, maybe it, she's got a weird birthmark. Maybe she's got longest, birds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think we sort of revel in the punishment that happens right. to him. I don't, I don't think you ever revel in the, Punishment and the the biggest uh, sort of positive takeaway for me was bringing out the dead. I don't think you revel in like, oh, let's like, you know, dabble in the dark side. Let's let's I don't feel like the audience is treated like a tourist to like pain and misery of like CD New York. Like you're you're there. But those like you said, when they they cut to, you know, John Goodman falling asleep at the wheel after he sort of gives out his like very practical hopes and dreams to Nicolas Cage, like gonna move out and like hey you know it's a good business you can move up quickly you know if you do this like and he's talking about a job he doesn't even really like like mm-hmm. i mean at the end of the act with goodman it's him attempted to clean out <laughs> their vehicle and just like throwing up, up his hands like that's it can't take it anymore <laughs> i can't i can't clean it anymore so yeah i don't think that you ever are supposed to be like titillated by like right. their travels after hours yeah, you can be you can kind of be a jerk with our lead character like, oh, I do. I wonder if she is. Does she have burn marks? Maybe if we stick around, we'll see or oh, maybe the hairdresser. Maybe, <laughs> maybe right. we'll stay the night there. Um, and that that's actually hard to do. I think uh, that's probably an accusation that's lobbed against a uh, filmmaker, especially that has presented a lot of crime on screen is that you're you're showing it to people who would never like go to those places in their life but they're excited and thrilled by like being there for two hours in a movie and bring out the dead it's labeled strangely on imdb as a thriller i don't really say i i actually don't really know what i would classify this as i think it's sort of genreless yeah i because i think it kind of weaves in between three or four different genre Uh, as the film goes on and it's not even like well for the first 20 minutes it's this and then it switches it goes back and forth between tragedy and comedy and thriller and action i mean like there's even a sequence here like you know i kind of talked about earlier about him constantly being like i have to save someone i have to save someone i have to do my job correctly just once tonight and maybe things will be okay and there's an opportunity when there's a pregnancy and of course there's twins and ving rames gets the live twin and Nicolas Cage gets the dead twin, which is played weirdly like for tears and for laughs in the space mm-hmm. of about five minutes. And it's kind of I think you've hit on like what I really love about this movie, because this is 
this is one of those Scorsese movies when people go like, what's your, what's your favorite? Like this one is near the top of the list for me. Like I could, I've rewatched this probably more than a movie like Goodfellas or Casino. Uh, some of it just because it's, you know, only two hours and one minute as opposed to like two hours and 45. That, that helps. Piss. Had to give us that extra minute. What the fuck? Can't... We were so two close, hours. Thelma. We were so <laughs> close. And because it never, and this makes sense with what the movie's about, it never lets the viewer rest either. There's no portion of this movie that lasts for more than five or ten minutes without changing things up. Uh, and you mentioned it kind of has this built-in three-act structure with his three partners, which is kind of, I don't know if the book does this as well, because it is based on a novel, uh, but it's kind of a, a stroke of genius where it's like it becomes this natural switching point for these acts, for these changes in tone uh, that the movie allows itself, which most movies wouldn't. They're like, wait, we can't just we can't just flip and turn on a dime. And that is literally this whole character's life is everything flips and turns on a dime. Like, okay, it's the next job. It's the next patient. You know, now I'm working with this guy who wants to eat. And now I'm working with the guy who wants to put on a show. And now I'm working with the guy who has bloodlust. And it's, he is the only, he's the only standard between those all three. And you see him as the night goes on, slowly losing more and more of himself. And you get it through Nicolas Cage's performance, which is one of my favorite of his career. And you get it through... Excellent editing, as always, and some great makeup work, too. Like, you see him throughout the night looking more and more haggard. The circles under his eyes are getting deeper and more pronounced. And I love that you can see that because it feels it feels like more than a night. It feels like, no, no, this is this man's life that is kind of slipping away night by night. And it's that empathy that you maybe don't get from a movie like Taxi Driver or After Hours that you do get here. Well, it's relentless in that it is three acts, but it feels like one endless night. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we don't see too much, um, unless it's with, uh, the Patricia Arquette character as far as like downtime. Like, I think we see him, uh, closing the window shades to like make it dark so he can sleep and just being restless briefly in in bed. Um, <laughs> there, there's actually like, it's not even really like, that much of a moment, but I believe it's John Goodman dropping him off at his car. And like, they don't even say like, you know, see you tomorrow or, you know, you know, <laughs> good morning, good night, whatever. Like he gets out and immediately Goodman pulls off like out of the scene. And it's just cage, like sort of standing there, like, you know, should I do something? Like, you know, I'm so unsatisfied with like right. what happened the night before. Uh, it's this weird, like, anti-adrenaline rush that he's on like he's he still has this need to come down but he's coming down from feeling like he's accomplished nothing in the world which is weird it's it's a very weird feeling um i think it's fantastic i'm glad you said it's one of your favorites because i you know we'll be together at the end of this i think because it's all i as i'm watching i'm like is this is this my favorite scorsese movie ever like I, i and i don't think it's brought up that much and it it does come from that you know great year 1999 i mean it comes from the same month where we got Fight Club with, you know, uh, the giant Brad Pitt and his sidekick that he can pick up in the palm of his hand. Um, so I, I don't know if it just got lost in the shuffle initially. And it's like, it's just strange. It's also like, you know, I don't want to like say like after hours is like more famous, but it feels like it's name checked more than bringing oh, out the dead. Oh, it 100% is more name checked. I think part of it is the year it was released in, as you mentioned, 1999. Uh, one of the 
greatest years for film in history. You're doing your own podcast just on that year called 99 from 99, which you should all check out. And this will be, it'll be featured on there. And I promise you just to change things up, unless my co-host there throws me a curveball, I really doubt we're going to be talking about Edward Norton so much. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, but I think it also gets lost in the shuffle of his career. If you look at it's between casino and the aviator. Like these are both movies that like were nominated for all the awards and thought very highly of. And, you know, they both feel even if they're I guess they both are kind of period pieces, you know, so and bring out the dead is. And I think because of what we talked about, the fact that it doesn't really have a genre and it floats between it's a hard movie to get a hold on. It's a hard movie to advertise for. Like I remember when the trailers for this came out, like the big shot of the trailer was the ambulance tipping over. And when you watch the movie, that shit doesn't matter. It's not about that. Like, they made it almost seem like an action movie, which they kind of had to do to get butts in the seats. And I get that. But I could imagine seeing that trailer and watching this movie and be like, you fucking lied to me. Like, what is, what am I watching? Yeah, when that moment happens, you're probably like, Cage, you're just grateful. Like, no, I guess now I can go home. <laughs> right. <laughs> nothing right? else to do. Um, yeah, I, I actually blame... Maybe Nicolas Cage. Uh, mm. I, I think it's. I think it would get talked about more. Uh, not not blaming him for his performance because I think he's great here. But um, if it it's like that gap between like sort of his work with De Niro or people he works with a lot, mm. uh, and then moving on to DiCaprio, where I feel like if it had that mm, common thread, it may be like, oh, this is let's watch all of the you know the DiCaprio uh, era of Scorsese, and it's just that like sort of that little blip. In between there, along with some other movie that we uh, chose not to cover. Mm, Don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that as is. Yeah, you bring up a good point that he does have he does have this history of finding a lead actor and kind of sticking with them. Like, oh, I found my muse, you know, whether it's Keitel or De Niro in his career, a little bit pesci, but only a couple movies here and there. Um, And then, of course, Leo later in his career. And in this, like there's some big name actors, but actors he never used again. You know, Nicholas Cage, John Goodman. Go ahead. You love Nicholas Cage here. Sure. You think he could have played Jesus and Last Temptation of Christ? Oh, no. I don't. He should have played played Judas. I I think he could. uh, You stop that. Harvey Keitel with that that curly hair, the red hair. Oh, he was fantastic. The ginger. Um, (laughs) He was was so good. Uh, There's a little guy. He was a tough guy, but I don't think he's he's tall. Actually, now that now that you God, you've made this such a point of like emphasis, which is weird because you're you're not a tall man either, and you're like it's like you hate your own kind. I like I like, like aspirational films. Like I don't want to see I, other I, short I, people on screen. Did you uh did you happen to see like this? I guess behind the scenes footage of like De Niro wearing these like fucking like Prince like platform shoes are like the, like he's no. a rock god it's it's a shot of him standing next to al pacino and i guess his character is supposed to be taller oh i see ridiculous huh. looking ridiculous so yeah, just you shoot know, from the ankles up you'll be fine that <laughs> might, might have been harder to do with uh you know the paramedic attire uh with ed norton but it could be done anyway i just thought uh cage would go for it he would go for that version of jesus but the only thing holding it back would be even in the late 80s, he was probably even then too Nicholas KG yeah. to play that and get away. With Definitely. Because Raising Arizona, um, what is the other one? Uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. You know, he oh, already had yeah. some infamous sort of over-the-top roles there. But 
I think he would have been great, along with Harvey Keitel. Don't take Harvey Keitel for me, as Judas. <laughs> I loved him. I I, loved him. I would rather have seen Harvey Keitel in this movie than Ed Norton. How about that? Can we? He could have been one of the partners easily. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you think that was a like a, you know, just to change it up, like that we're getting like these different guys? Because you I think easily so. could have put like sort of the Scorsese Rogues Gallery. As the other yeah, drivers and I think here. Harvey Keitel could have either played the second or third one of his partners equally well. Like he would have been, he would have been fine in either one of those roles. But this also could be a case of like, I think, I think when you're a director who uses the same actors over and over again, I wonder if there's competing pressure, pressure on one side to use those actors, and then pressure on the other side, of like, can I do this without them? Can I do this without the people I usually lean on? Um, and maybe that played into the the reasons why this cast is i mean other than the female lead here or these are basically all new actors for marty to work with yeah i'm not i'm i'm looking here and like did any of them ever come back i don't think so i think this this was uh marty cheating this was him stepping out (laughs) stepping (laughs) out on bobby and harvey (laughs) how dare you sir and we love it (laughs) absolutely good job leave those Look at those terrible actors, Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel, on the back burner. Give yeah, us more big is, rings, uh, please. Yeah, this is as far as you can get away from uh, the the Irishman, which will finish out this month. Yes. As far as bringing getting the band back together, this Hopefully. this feels like the uh, you know the weird sort of like uh, you know punk rock album like that uh, like everyone like loves like you know that has a fan base mm-hmm. but like the the band itself dissolved and like well we're not doing that again never again uh, and it's very very different from the film that's going to follow this in our list too yes. as far as good lord the the type the style yes. that we get there yeah Prestige. i think, uh, I think from now on i'm just going to refer to bringing out the dead as punk rock marty scorsese i like it i'm okay with that so marty gets some strange that's what i'm (laughs) (laughs) oh god that's so much better oh i hate that you thought of that uh so we are going to take a break and hear once again from our quote-unquote expert on martin scorsese hiro from the true bromance podcast you will have heard him at the very beginning of this episode uh talking about bringing out the dead probably saying something not so great that he didn't like it because i don't think he's a big fan of this movie uh but we'll hear his take on the aviator uh before we come back and give the definitive word so we'll take a quick break and be back so i got to it late and I, it's a masterpiece it's a legit masterpiece and i i wrote this a while back when i was um first saw it and i was like there's there's some properties that people think that are like kind of unfilmable there's just too much noise in this dude's life right he was uh he was uh, into the filmmaking he was doing the planes and and every segment is its own incredible story and he does such an incredible job of just snapping from one to the other and and making it all weave together and show sort of this bell curve of an arc of this guy's life all the way through to that collapse All right. Hi, everyone. We're back. Uh, We are back now to talk about, you know, basically the same movies bringing out the dead. The Aviator, Uh, a a three hour epic uh, from Martin Scorsese uh, that, you know, of course, chronicles uh, the life of director and aviator Howard Hughes. It kind of starts in the 20s and ends like near the end of the 40s. Uh, So there's a lot of ground to cover here. And this is, I think, is this first time he used Leo in one of his movies? 
Um, so this was a big... Oh, we skipped it. Oh, we, we skipped sk- Gangs of New York. Is that right? Okay. Yep. Yeah. And the reason we skipped that, just to explain ourselves, is by all accounts, the version of Gangs of New York that came out was not really the version that Marty wanted to put out. So we figured it was okay to move past it. We could just say, hey, great performance by Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, let's move on. I, I would have thought by now with the uh, the death of uh, Miramax, right? Uh, in many forms, you know, because uh, that's before you know. Why Disney. is this not released? Yeah, it seems like uh, there's money to be made there, uh, or you know, maybe maybe it was such a troubled production uh, that Scorsese just sort of moved on. I don't want. A, I don't want to put that together. Um, like. <laughs> My understanding was that was yet again another passion project from Scorsese, and this was a passion project uh, for DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. So they sort of scratched each other's backs here. Mm -hmm. But both of them, this is like the uh, get Scorsese an Oscar face. How'd that work out? (laughs) I mean, it did, but just not for the one people would have anticipated. Right. I mean, this does feel like I mean, we use the term Oscar bait a lot, but come on. This is a movie about someone who is very big in Hollywood. It's got some of the biggest stars in the world. It's an epic, both in length and in scope. Like, this is everything the Oscars eat up. And I think it got nominated for, like, nine or 11 awards, including Best a, Director. With the, it was and, a big contender. Yeah. I think it... I, I, you know, my read of the situation was that it was the runner-up that year to... Was it Million Dollar Baby? Yep. Yep. That's... Hmm. I it like is, uh, I like Million Dollar Baby. Oh, okay. I think it's. I, I think thought it's we were getting good. a preview of no. uh, the Eastwood month that we'd be getting, where Dave's ready to talk shit. I'm tired just thinking about that. That's like that man just keeps coming out with movies. He just never stops. Like, let's but to be friends. fair, you you would probably limit him to he one month. He gets one month. He gets ten movies. Shut up, Clint. <laughs> get go talk to your chair. We you get ten movies, not twenty. Uh, but I mean, I. <laughs> This movie is really interesting to me because I, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's a phenomenal production. Uh, but I think there are moments where you're like, oh, yeah, Marty, you just got to do whatever the fuck you wanted on this movie. No one was checking you. Like You're like, ah, Gwen Stefani. I want to put her in my movie. She looks enough like a starlet from the 1930s. Sure. And so there's she a lot of one line. Two? Yes. Two, I think. Yes. So there's a lot of moments like this. And I think the antithesis of that is the performance of Kate Blanchett. Um, as Catherine Hepburn, which is perfect. Um, it would be very easy for that character to simply be, well, I'm going to do a voice for two hours and you're going to be entertained because you know who Catherine Hepburn is. What I was most impressed with her is she did the voice, she did the mannerisms, fantastic, but like actually made this character a human being and someone you cared about, which is pretty impressive when you are fully doing the voice and doing the hand motions and everything that people think of when they think of Catherine Hepburn. Not me, Dave. Uh, I agree with uh, Howie Hughes. She's just a movie star. <laughs> I, <laughs> knew, I knew you would love that line. <laughs> love that I was line. Watching this. Love it's a that great line. line. Yeah. I mean, and it's a really, it's really interesting to make a movie based on this man because there are going to be moments where he's pretty unlikable. Like he's a narcissist. <laughs> a <lot of> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you still, I think for this movie to work, I think you still have to have empathy for him by the end of the film. And I think DiCaprio's performance is so good that you just, you can't help but care. And I actually talked to a couple people who I know who have been diagnosed with OCD. And they they both told me that like, they did not realize he was going to be so on point, like to the point that it was triggering to watch 
Like, mm. wow, he really has this down. Like, I have done that. I have seen that. And I guess he, like, you know, went and talked to, like, 10 or 20 different people who suffered from OCD and really focused in on those mannerisms and the thought processes and everything else. So it's a pretty... It's it's a pretty impressive performance in two ways. You've got the like charming Leo performance where he is Howard Hughes aviator, Howard Hughes filmmaker, and you're just along for the ride. And then there's the private moments too. And I think he masters both of them. And I think DiCaprio is one of those actors who, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say he's one of the best of his generation, but also he could be like weirdly underrated because he's so good looking and so charming. That I think sometimes when we think of like Oscar nominated actors, we think of, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, we don't think of the the guy who would be on like Tiger Beat magazine when he was, you know, 15, 16 years old. You know, so he has to fight, but he like he balances those two things, I think, really well. And this may be one of the best examples of that with, with this role. This may be one of the rare times. Hell, it may be the only time. Uh, where <laughs> Hollywood has given the benefit of the doubt to a woman uh, in the performing arts as opposed to a man because when you were talking about him, I'm like, well, yeah, he just kind of goes from like project to project where it's like, he's great. He's great in that. It became yeah. like a, a gag. Like, when's he going to get his Oscar? Much like, you know, Scorsese. Like Marty. Yep. Uh, you know, he's quite a bit younger than Scorsese, but that's how good he has been. And he's been in our, our lives for so long from a child actor when mm-hmm. he was great. Um, that I thought like, well, I guess he's he's like in that Meryl Streep category, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just mm-hmm. expect a certain level from him. And so like you're saying, it takes a lot to be like bowled over by him because you're like, well, right. yeah, okay. He's got to be great of every course, time. Of course it is. Yeah, it's Leo. Yeah, I don't know. Meryl Streep, um, not overrated, but it's like the the gag with her is like, she's fantastic every year, every time. And Okay, I want to jump in here to say something controversial. Oh, Meryl, no. Streep See, is, Meryl Streep is wonderful, but she is overrated. And here's why. Is any year that's like a, a weak year for Oscar-nominated women, they just look, I swear to God, the voters look around and be like, what was Marilyn this year? And they just nominate her no matter what. Like That's probably more an indictment on uh, the roles that women get every year that's a good uh, point. in film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that he's in that category, like where he's mm-hmm. like in that, you know, he's obviously not got the uh, filmography yet because of the age discrepancy. Sure. But yeah, there is the expectation that if you're going to see a DiCaprio movie, that there's a certain uh, choosiness that he has where the project he's doing is something challenging to him yeah. as an and actor. He, and like you are kind of reference, he can't just be good. If he's just good, you're like, yeah, well, that's fine, I guess. But he has to be phenomenal to, mm-hmm. to win an award, which is why I apparently had to like, fall asleep inside of a bear carcass or something to win an award. So, so, so stupid. Like we can't just give him, you know, the Oscar just for his acting ability. We've got to have all these extra like little, like he was like a fucking boy scout or something. Like he got certain badges for like, you know, I mean, at least an Eagle or... scout. Let's be fair. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I dread, uh, you know, the revenant being featured on this podcast. Uh, cause I guess it could, it could be, be. yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll but it's just gonna be hate. us, like the two of us, shitting on that movie for twenty five minutes. It's I be great. I make a request that uh, our mutual friend uh, Andrew from the Curb be the guest that month, the expert, because oh. then oh, even the expert no. will be shitting on it with us. So we'll be in good company. Um, yeah, the Aviator. So I remember being kind of hesitant with my excitement because I liked DiCaprio and Scorsese when it came out. 
Um, but I was, it, it did look too inside baseball Oscar to me. Like, it's like, you know, a celebration of a man who, you know, spent some money in our business, <laughs> millions of dollars, a lot of money <laughs> way back in the day. And we're going to see, uh, these famous starlets of their era. Like we're going to see like up and coming actresses, uh, attempt to do their version of <laughs> Ava Gardner, like Kate Beckinsale, which, and I, you know, as from <laughs> an aesthetic, go. from an aesthetic point of view, I love Kate Beckinsale. But like this like, might be this might be beyond her. Like this is because she is she is asked to carry a pretty heavy emotional load uh, when that relationship ends, and I just eh, it doesn't quite work. Dear listener, please believe me. Uh, I am I am not here just as a point guard of hate for Dave. Like, but it seems like <laughs> just like serve it up. up. Yeah, <laughs> right now. Uh, so yeah, we'll just move past Kate Beckinsale. Uh, but I remember being really surprised how like enthusiastic I was to the aviator. And I'm pretty sure like that Oscar season, I was rooting for it. Uh, and it wasn't same. just like a give it to Scorsese, give it to DiCaprio because they deserve it. I was like, oh, that's the movie in this, you know, of the Oscar baby stuff that I enjoyed the most. I found the most entertaining. And it's hard because I, I don't like these like life story things. I think they do an important thing, which is. You know, we don't end up seeing him in like a Vegas penthouse, like wearing right. tissue boxes, like the the Mr. Burns Simpsons version <laughs> yeah, of this. Exactly. Uh, and I, I love the way it ends. I mean, it's 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 heartbreaking triumphant and tragic. Oof. Like in the you go from one second of like victory, and then it's completely undercut by like what this guy is truly going to face in his personal life the entire yeah. time that he can like sort of conquer the outside world, but not like the interior life. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you want me to bring him out here tomorrow, then, Howard? Boy, the future. Howard? Howard. Boy, the future. Boy, the future. Let's take a walk, Howard. Way the future. Give me a hand here, will you, Glenn? The way the future. 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 Stay here. I'll be right back. You understand, Howard? The way the future. The way the future. Guard the door. I'll get a doctor. No one sees him like this. Yeah, which is devastating. That probably goes back to a little bit what you're saying with Kate Beckinsale, that she's sort of the final... Uh, you know, pick you up, dust you off kind of moment. And mm-hmm. that, that stuff does really pale in comparison to Kate Blanchett. And it's weird. Like yeah. I actually forgot that the Ava Gardner, you know, this character, this version of it comes back because I felt like, Oh, we get that with Catherine Hepburn. She comes back at the Agreed. end. But, yeah. Uh, you know, Howard Hughes, DiCaprio, both lover of the ladies. So yeah, that's <laughs> true. I don't know. Most of these women might've been too old for Leo, but <laughs> <laughs> even then, yes. even then. Yeah. What, I think the thing that wowed there are two things in rewatching this because this isn't a movie that like oh let's just go put on the aviator for three hours like it's not a movie I go back to a lot like it's one of those you're like your snooty hypothetical (laughs) voice there (laughs) what am I gonna do Uh, but I will say for a three hour long movie like it books like this this movie moves and there are that's a rarity. Well, it's a three-hour movie. It's amazing like, how much he accomplished in his life. Like, it's yeah. like all the fields of interest that he had. So Absolutely. yeah, there's a lot to cover. But he covers it very well. It's very well paced. Uh, and that, honestly, this movie is worth the price of admission just for the plane crash sequence. Like that holds up like crazy. Hmm. 
Like I, you know, I'm sitting on my couch tense. Like I know how this ends. I know that he's going to make I it have, through this. I have a very different okay. uh, thrilling sequence that I, uh, it is, <laughs> oh, it is the great, the fantastic uh, Jude Law as Errol Flynn. Mm. Great casting. Reaching, reaching over to grab the blue piece. I, I love, mm. I love the, the, the choices as far as the, uh, throughout the, the film that whatever at that point in time, the colors yeah. you could see how films were made oh, then oh, I and i guess yeah. and i guess they had to go through this extensive digital recreation of this kind of two and three strip mm-hmm. technicolor like this is i mean we'll get to it later i'm sure when we talk about hugo later this month but this like not only a great movie not only enjoyable to watch not only incredible to look at on screen but like you can really and it's rare that you can say this about it, but you can like feel the love for old hollywood behind this movie without it being like, and everything was wonderful. Yeah. Because the character that you're following through this journey has a distaste mm-hmm. for that studio structure. And in that yeah. sequence, you yeah. have one of the stars of that era touching his food, just reaching over. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's the most like, <laughs> like that was more physically assaulting to me than the plane crash was this guy. Like, what the fuck? And I love that sort of like first date kind of jitters that you have there. Mm-hmm. That's a great sort of like, not meet you, but like Catherine Hepburn, like Kate Blanchett, like they want to be alone, but they're going through the paces of like, Oh, we should be like seen at these places. Cause that's what people of our financial stature do right. and our fame. Uh, but they're most, you know, they're happiest when they're alone together. Mm-hmm. Um, also a pretty great, uh, meet the parents moment Ooh. as well. I was just thinking is... that cause <laughs> I have next to me, my, you know, my iPad with all the cast list and I've just like looked over and saw Francis Conroy, who plays Catherine Hepburn's mother. Oh my God, that scene is fantastic. Because for two reasons. One, you've got like the awkwardness of meeting the parents. Like, and of course it's turned up to eleven with the the money and the fame and everything else. But his his moment of and it's so interesting coming from him who is, you know, becomes one of the richest men in the world, saying like Did you go to mechanic school to learn all this? You know, airplane guff? No, no, I didn't, Muddy. No. Well, Howard just flew around the world in three days. I think, I think don't we've you had know. enough about airplanes. And dogs, apparently. Had a well, then how'd you make all that money? Dachshund. We don't care about money here, Mr. Hughes. Well, that's because you have it. <laughs> Would you repeat that? You don't care about money because you've always had it. Well, then how did you make Excuse all that? Excuse me, I'm speaking. Okay. Thank you. All right. Some of us choose to uh, work for a living. Speaking of which, I have more of that uh, airplane guff to attend to. And like, it's interesting where you have this, you have this character who is rich beyond all of our wildest dreams, who has all the fame in the world, all the beauty, all the beautiful women in the world. And yet there's these moments like that in here, much like with the scene where he's trying to get an extra camera and you, but you root for him. Yeah, they they somehow managed to, put him up as like the underdog in this yeah. scenario even yeah, though he's the billionaire <laughs> richer than god he's very richer than all the people that he's dealing with but there's this weird you know classism type thing yeah. where it's well, like, like he's some he sort of earned it as opposed to people who were born with it like there is that i think marty definitely makes that dividing line very clear is that we should be even though he has as you said more money than god we're rooting for him because in some way, like he did something to get it other than just being born. Well, and he's also continues to put it 
uh, and himself like on the line at risk for his passions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the poor John C. Riley, who's great here. Oh, <laughs> so the, like just make it work. Finance guy, the, you know, moving around. Uh, there's so to be many fair, great, He like, did warn him at the very beginning. He said, you know, you're going to be working four times as hard as you were. I'm getting you for a bargain. And he was not kidding. <laughs> he really does make him work throughout his entire life. I think it, it's amazing that in the three hour runtime, for as combative as this version of Hughes is that you don't ever get tired of his bullshit. Like, and maybe yeah. because at the point in the film where you would, it's, it's when he starts to really struggle with his mental health issues where it, it, you know, hobbles him in a way to where it sort of shades his previous social dealings with people in a way where you're more forgiving and understanding of those prior outbursts because, now, now all that stuff is coming to to a head, um, but even then, you know that they serve up some pretty good villains uh, for us, like Alec Baldwin uh, or Alan Alda. Where even at that point in his life, you want to have the moment where Howard Hughes, you know, throws the napkin down the table. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's let's put my money in action. Let's see right. like how much pain I can put you through. Like you know, that's it. For the most part in this film, it is a fair fight among like titans of mm-hmm. the world at the time. But it's, it, I mean, he's a hero in a lot of different ways, but the other one is, it's like, this is the guy I, I've heard of. This is the guy we, we know Howard. I know we this guy's know all name. The details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, so all of this was worth it because like his life didn't mean something away. Like it carried on in that way. I think that's, that's why I appreciate that. They really don't go into like his old age with this, where they really like when he did, um, I don't know. It seems strangely respectful, if you can call it that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm sure Mr. Hughes would not have wanted any sort of film made. No, about him, no, but, no. But it does feel respectful that it's like when he withdrew from public life, the film doesn't follow him. You know yep. what I mean? Into that private space. Yeah, it is remarkably restrained in that way. Like, I think, like when I when I went to go see this movie, I was expecting that. I was expecting it to delve mainly into his later life because that's the. In a lot of ways, that's the stuff you would think like, oh, that's really cinematic. There's a lot of stuff you can do with that. And I like the fact that there's, you know, he had a big enough life that you don't even need to go into that. You just you can just show hints of those moments and be like, well, that's enough. You get the point. Um, And I think sometimes Martin Scorsese doesn't get enough credit for that, for being a subtle filmmaker. And I think a lot of it is because people mainly know his mobster mobster movies, you know, well, they're thinking of Joe Pesci. Right. You know, scene or scenes from Goodfellas, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, it was interesting watching this for me the first time because I have actually uh, seen the Spruce Goose. Uh, that's actually something you can you can actually go see in California. And it's, it was really interesting because it's like known as that and there's all this history around it. And it was really interesting to kind of see the other side of it that that like enraged him that it was called that, that it was originally like called that as a joke and his whole goal in this, like, I just got to get this motherfucker in the air. Like I just, I have to prove everyone wrong. And I think that is the thing that pushes him throughout his life. It's just like, I'm going to prove all these doubters wrong. And I like what you said that like externally, he is a champion. He's never been defeated externally, whether it's by the United States government, whether it's by these big corporations, whether it's by other movie studios. But the one thing that he just can't move past is his own internal struggles. And especially, and it makes sense, especially given in this time, OCD was not something that was a diagnosis. 
I mean, they just would have called you crazy. That's that's the only diagnosis you'd get. Um, and if he was, you know, born 50 years later, totally different story. There's treatments, there's medication, there's all that. But his also image was so important to him that there's no way he would ever be prepared to seem weak in any way because he knows showing that weakness would just allow all of those doubters to attack. And I think... Um, it's interesting you brought up Alec Baldwin. I think maybe this is one of the first times I remember seeing him as a villain and he's so good at it. Like this is honestly like what he was born to do on film <laughs> is to play a heavy and to play a villain. Cause early in his career, he's like a hero. He's like the sex symbol, you know, hunt for Rod October, all that good stuff. But then later in his career, you know, I mean, I guess he did some romantic comedy stuff, but most of his stuff has been these kind of villainous roles. And he really seems to just kind of sink his teeth into this kind of role. Yes. As great as he is with, uh, I mean, uh, for me, he's very iconic with that David Mamet, uh, the mm-hmm. Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Ross speech. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, that's good. <laughs> and there's a lot of, there's some of that here, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, couched in sort of polite terms, like very cutting lines, but on the face, like of it, where I'm, I'm a businessman and I'm going to be like nice to you to a point with these surveilled threats. But I love how that wraps up it, after all that talk. It just wraps fuck. up with fuck. <laughs> it's a great, a great end. And I like the fact that there's so much bluster in that character and so much performance, but the man knows when he's been licked. Like he knows when he's been beat. It's just like everyone else is like, we got these ideas, blah, blah, blah. We'll do this or this. And he's like, no, nope, no, nope, it's over. We're done here. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, there are weaknesses in this movie, but any of the weaknesses, they so pale in comparison to how fantastic the production value and the performances are here. And it is like, you know, we'll talk about the movie later on this month that he won the Oscar for, but it's a shame that he didn't win the Oscar for something like this. He did make uh, Oscar history in a way. He uh, tied up uh, Altman and Hitchcock uh, for being at this point in his career, uh, most nominations without a win for best director. So the aviator is... has that distinction, uh, losing to Clint Eastwood, who became the oldest winner for best director oh, in Oscars 74 and, uh, killing it, Dave <laughs> killing it still. Um, yeah, I've not seen, uh, Ray with Jamie Foxx cause I don't like those type of movies. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a really good impression of, uh, of Ray Charles. Well, he won, uh, yeah. and, uh, DiCaprio lost, um, but yeah, Kate Blanchett, uh, I guess, I think maybe is the only, maybe there were some technical awards, but you know, this didn't win either yeah, screenplay. It won, um, best cinematography, best editing, costume design, art editing. direction. Scorsese movie could never win best editing God from what I hear on Twitter. <laughs> yes. God forbid. So the only performance, uh, it won for was with Kate Blanchett's performance, which is pretty fantastic performance. I'm glad she won, but I also think Leo should have won. I mean, this is a. I would have switched it. I would have taken it away from uh, Miss Blanchett only because I love Virginia Madsen and Sideways so much. Oh, I mean, I, yeah. If you there have to give it it anything to Sideways, sure. give it to her. That one killer scene she's got. Yeah. Uh, Natalie Portman, closer? I don't know. I like closer. Oh, a lot yeah. That, not uh, more than me. That's <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely my favorite uh, kind of stage to screen. Uh, adaptation is closer. It's fantastic. It's got just some just some good guys in that movie. Clive Owen, Drew oh Lawrence, yeah, real nice, dudes. nice dudes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, but I do think. I mean, we'll we'll get to some more performances of Leo's, but this is one of my favorite performances of his. I think it's got 
It's got is this more... the one you wish she would have won for, hmm. or is there another another role? I'm assuming not the Revenant. Uh, not the Revenant. I mean, I would be fine him winning for this or for a movie we'll cover soon, The Wolf of Wall Street. That's the one. There I we mean, go. It, but I think this is a much more layered performance than you'd expect in a biopic. Like, there's a lot more going on kind of beneath the sure. surface that I wasn't expecting. So. It says here that Jamie Foxx had way more layers. For Ray. <laughs> All right. So we're going to end this episode before I just start screaming incoherently, uh, as per usual. Um, so, um, so Mike, where are you with, uh, with Marty now? Like he's, you, we started this episode saying like, he's done everything you could want and more. And now he's moved on, uh, to one of your favorite Scorsese films and kind of, at least at this point, maybe the most epic in scale. Like he's moved to kind of like gone with the wind territory, like three, three and a half hour long movies that cover, you know, decades of time. So where does one even go from here? I think that's a question I keep coming back to, not only as we go through his filmography, but also for him, like moving into the future is like, I think some people like they have this picture in their head of like, well, he always does this type of movie, but like the man has done, just about every type of movie you can imagine. So where does one even go after the aviator gets nominated for 11 Academy Awards and he gets screwed over again for best director? <laughs> like, where do you go from here? Uh, like, in like, good company though. In yeah, good company. But like, I time. know it's interesting. I know that like, you know, most directors will put on this face of like, I don't really care about the awards. It's an honor to be nominated, but this has to sting. Like to have a career this fantastic over this many years already and the Academy would be like, nope, nope, you just make violent movies. Oh, you made a great uh, Hollywood epic? Nope, can't wait for that either. Sorry, we'll give it to another old white guy. Like, not for you. Um, I, I mean, probably at that time, uh, coming off of Gangs of New York and The Aviator, uh, I would probably be in that boat of uh, just stop trying. Stop trying for Oscar glory. Yeah. And <laughs> I think he did. <laughs> and he <laughs> fucked that up too somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as where my head would be at then or even now, I still would not care. Um, but it's, it is hard to go from, you know, quote unquote, passion project to passion project. Cause the way we started the episode was bringing out the dead. It was like, Oh, let's just see what we can do here. Let's just try something different. Um, so yeah, I think it gives you a very different feeling, even watching the film as far as like the, what the stakes were for the filmmakers. Right. And so, like, if they're, like, shooting for perfection every time, which I know you're, with every project, you're trying to produce the best product possible. Mm -hmm. But, like, if you're coming to it, like, we have to get this just right because I've thought about this for, like, decades. Right. right. Uh, no pressure. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> that, that, I don't know about you, but it can, like, rub off on me as I'm just sitting, I've paid, like, you know, 12 bucks. I'm like, God, good Lord. I'm so tense. <laughs> just, like, I hope this turns out all right. Right. Uh, so yeah, a little, a little bit of fun and just like, you know, just maybe just find something that you've not thought about for years. And I don't know. I don't know if that's true because I don't know much about like the making of with the next film. But I do know as far as Oscar glory, we finally get our best uh, picture, best director win with the next one. Yep, that we do. All right. So on our next episode, we will be talking about the duo of The Departed and Hugo. Another strange double feature. Very different in tone. Uh <laughs> Yeah. So if we were doing this thematically, you probably put Hugo with the Aviator, right? Like if you want to. Oh yeah, you got the... like love of film and yeah. The, yeah, the passion. Yeah, for sure. I don't know but, where you would put the maybe the Departed and Wolf of Wall Street together. Maybe look, Scorsese 
one of the greats, the first to get two months on this little show. Not not great when it comes to like mapping out like a podcast on him, though. No. He just doesn't cooperate with us. God, what a jerk. All right, so that's what we're covering next time, The Departed and Hugo, so make sure to catch up on those before the next episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to see more of our nonsense, you can follow us on Twitter at DirectedByPod, um, or you can uh, go on our Patreon and you can uh, pay us a dollar a month uh, at the very least, and you can get the full interviews of these experts we have on the show. So this month, that's Hyro from the True Romance podcast. If you'd like to hear all of that interview, not you getting can. a dollar from anyone this month, <laughs> yes. I can guarantee yeah. you that. We'll, we'll try again next month. <laughs> uh, but yeah, follow us on uh, on there. It's uh, Patreon.com/slash A Podcast Directed By. <laughs>